help support that transformation and making transformation everyone's business. Hello and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us and we've got an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala, and today we're talking with Sam Shah, Director of Digital Development at NHS England. Welcome, Sam, and thanks so much for joining us. Hello. Great to have you, Sam. Um, So just to introduce you to our listeners, uh, the first time that you and I interacted was actually on Twitter, and it was in a conversation about a job that you were recruiting to. And I wonder if you could just take a moment to kind of explain how that came about and then what, what the result was at the end of it. So like uh, a lot of my life, it is uh, lived through the world of social media and technology. And we got chatting because uh, one of my colleagues was recruiting to a role within one of our digital teams in NHS Digital, in fact, uh, working alongside my, my team. And uh, that role was put out there and had some conditions in that role around what someone would require in order to be eligible for that. And we had a really interesting exchange online about some changes that was needed for that role in order to make it more inclusive. And I was really pleased that after we had an interaction and speaking to my colleague in Edge Digital, they very kindly changed the role specification to make it more attractive to people out there from a range of different careers and backgrounds that would not necessarily have had this particular degree qualification. So it was great that we did that and great that you pushed us to change our role in order to make it more inclusive. Yeah, thank you so much. It was it was probably one of the best responses I've had to to tweets like that, where as someone who recruits people myself, it's, it can be really easy to overlook these things sometimes or not quite think through what some language can mean for different kinds of audiences. So yeah, full kudos to, to your team for picking that up so quickly. It was great. And I think it's one of these things where as digital leaders working across government, it can sometimes be difficult to become completely accessible. But I think one of the things that's great about people I work with is that they're a new group with a very new way of thinking, which are becoming accessible to a wide range of audiences. And I think it's only through that engagement that we all change. It was really useful to have that interaction that made us a little bit different that day. And at the end of it resulted in a better outcome for the system. Awesome. And what happened with that job? Do you have someone doing the role now? So at the moment, there is someone um, undertaking part of that role on an interim basis, but uh, certainly NHS Digital has been through a fairly extensive exercise where they're still going through that recruitment process. So they had a lot of applicants for that role, I think, as a result of having opened it up. So they're still going through that to make a final decision of who they're going to appoint. Awesome. Well, look forward to seeing who, uh, who lands the gig. Great. So, okay. So we've got some some questions for you, as as we always do our research into your background. And what we're quite curious about to start us off is that, unlike plenty of people in managerial positions in the NHS, you're one of those who started out in a clinical position. Can you tell us a bit about why you decided to become a clinician and then your journey from there? So my story being clinician is probably uh, as interesting or as boring as most other people's. And once upon a time, when I was about six years old, I think, I decided that what I wanted to do was to become a dentist. Uh, and I, I don't know why, as a six-year-old, I decided I wanted to be a dentist, but that's what I pretty much fixated on. And then along the way, I was really lucky that I got to work with the doctor, the GP, that actually delivered me at birth. And uh, he was my family GP as well. And I got to work in his practice. And at that point, I started getting interested in technology. I was given an opportunity to install the first version of his practice computer system. And then as time went on, I did a whole range of other things. But getting into clinical practice was very much about continuing that both that interest I had in wanting to be a dentist, which was perhaps a fixation with small objects and drills and lots of interesting things like that. And that other blend that I picked up along the way around working with people and other patients, and I wanted to do that very much. And as I went into a profession in studying and training for dentistry, I got to see lots of different things. But I still also had this interest in technology. And having had some other roles working outside of clinical dentistry and working in other parts of both the health sector, but also other industries, 
I was really lucky in gaining lots of experience around digital transformation and the adoption at that stage of new technologies that were quite new to the UK and new to consumers. And so blending those things ended up taking me to where I am today, which is a combination of still being a practicing clinician, so I still work in practice, but I also happen to have this role that I really enjoy, which is around developing digital ecosystem in the NHS and delivering some national programs. Amazing. And, and what sounds so great about that is that you were able to bring, obviously, that, that day-to-day experience into your work in the, in the technology space as well. And I was wondering, is there, is there anything in, from your clinician side of the world in particular that drives you really mad or motivates you to change things in the tech world? Oh, probably everything every day. And it's probably a combination of knowing what the art of the possible is as well as seeing what happens out there every time we introduce something into a system. So the interesting thing about the NHS is, of course, the NHS isn't just a single organisation, but actually it's a combination of many organisations. So the NHS has more than, if you like, 23,000 organisations that make up the NHS in England alone. And if you think about the people, we deal with something like 1.4 million people every single day are... Uh, come into interaction with the NHS at some point every 24 hours. And so there's lots of things that as a clinician, sometimes I can find a bit frustrating. In my own practice, uh, this happens fairly frequently around the way in which we have to deal with simple things like communicating between clinicians, not just within the practice, but with clinicians outside the practice elsewhere. When we're doing things like sending a referral or trying to move what people call x-rays between different organizations, or sometimes even finding a way to allow a patient to book an appointment. All of these things cause frustration every day. And if I think about other areas, other sectors I've worked in, we've solved lots of problems in those sectors. If I think about working in a retail environment, we certainly have seen the transformation of the retail sector at the end of the 90s and the 2000s, but we're very much more about that transformation being driven by using digital technology that was made very consumer facing. We take other sectors like banking, we put into the hands of individuals the ability for them to view online their statements. Again, not dissimilar to being able to allow someone access to their own record in a health setting. And if you take something like communication, communication very much in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the digital era took hold, happened through the medium of email. But in those other sectors, we've seen a move away from email starting to happen to using tools that are more bespoke. And so there's something there for me every single day when I talk to my clinical colleagues and think about my own practice, where there are things that we could do much better to improve the experience for clinicians in that space, as well as patients. And that could be something as simple as the check-in to see somebody when they arrive, or even how their phone call is dealt with, or the ability for them to make a payment or even book into the practice. All of these things could be resolved much better using technology. Definitely. Well, clinicians are users too, as they say. And you you mentioned some other sectors that you'd worked in there. Can you tell us about some of the interesting projects you worked on outside of medicine? I've been really lucky. I've seen so many projects in different places. Some of the most interesting, that probably aren't in that interesting now, but if I go back in time, were interesting at the time, were things like implementing online channels for people to be able to shop. So today, we probably all take it for granted. We can download an app and most of us can order pretty much anything we want to arrive within a matter of days. But if I take the end of the 90s and beginning of the 2000s, this wasn't so common. And so if you imagine, you had people standing in warehouses around the country that were receiving printed pieces of paper from which they were running around warehouses, picking and collecting items that they then put into manual delivery. But on the receiving side, on the other side, the consumer, the citizen, the person interacting probably wouldn't have known that the website they're dealing with actually is doing no more than acting as a form to send some data. But that's sort of where the online world of shopping first started. And so seeing that change and being involved in some of those initial online organizations being created was really interesting. Other things, though, that uh, I came across was when I was working with a big financial services provider, 
putting in their first phone systems where they went from what were individual lines to people's desks in uh, about something like about 140 branches around the country to where they used the first sort of VoIP type systems, which weren't VoIP at the time, but those kind of things where they brought in single consolidated lines with interactive voice recognition technology on them, where people back then annoyingly had to select numbers. But even all of those things generated some degree of efficiency for them. And in some cases, made the consumer experience better. In other cases, perhaps not, where you ended up with large loops of people pressing lots of buttons to get to an agent. But these are things we learned from and were really interesting to do and then take them and scale them where they were taken globally for this organization. And uh, in that case, were moved at that time to Kuala Lumpur, to Bangalore, to those kind of places. And they were really interesting. And I was guess what that tells me and what happened at that time is at that time there was a movement both from industry around what would drive productivity and efficiency, but also consumers and what their expectations were. And those were fascinating at that point in time to see that happen. Also seeing the shift where at the beginning of the 2000s and that sort of period, people were just getting used to having online access to things like bank statements and building those systems and coding them to be able to generate views of those images. Because before that time, lots of things were dealt with on microfilm. I mean, people may not believe, but around 2000, 2001, there was lots of microfilm being shipped around different places just to give views of statements. Uh, it was not possible to see transactions the same day. It wasn't possible even necessarily to transact direct debits using online tools. They were tapes that were sent from one organization to the other. So seeing technology, which back then wasn't called uh, distributed ledger technology, but effectively that's what it was, being created for the first time and now seeing where it, where it is today, is fascinating because, of course, all of these things have some use case, some application back into the health system. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, so you obviously returned to the NHS, which is one of the UK's most beloved organisations, but also one that has a lot of scrutiny. What made you want to return to the NHS and, and take this big role? Well, well, I'm really lucky. I trained as a clinician and went into public health. And public health is an area where we really focus on inequalities in healthcare and improving access and availability of health service. And with that comes a certain responsibility about what are the things that we can do about improving outcomes for the population, as well as improving the effectiveness of services. And so public health as an area really involves thinking about the system as a whole, thinking strategically about the system and ways in which we can improve that system. And that's what got me back into the technology side of the NHS is through that route. And one of the things I was first involved in was around um, buying uh, for the NHS the organization I was working for a system to bring together patient level data so that we can improve patient outcomes by taking a population health approach. So that was one of the areas that I got back into when I was working in a local NHS organization. Another thing that I was involved in was around creating some of the first directories of service. So uh, you may not believe it, but organizations had books in which they listed all their services that they commissioned locally. And uh, we had to translate that from books to Word documents and Word documents to spreadsheets and spreadsheets to something much more considered. So, again, that was another area where I was able to apply something I'd done elsewhere back in the health system. And another thing that was probably one of the... Um, one of the bigger achievements I managed to have and impacts I've had in the health system was digitizing the referral process, particularly in the southeast of England. And we went from a situation where not many people were providing uh, digital referrals for their referrals from their practices into hospital to a situation where we got for a certain group of clinicians 100%. And part of the reason that happened was really trying to understand the needs of those clinicians and what would make it better for the clinicians, but ultimately what would improve the outcome for the patient? How much more quickly could we get that patient from that primary care environment into a hospital environment for their treatment? So those are some of the things that I did um, as I made my way back from clinical practice into this role, which combines digital health. One of the other areas that we worked on was the learning development program for the NHS nationally. This wasn't one of the local programs, 
but this was one of the national programs where working with lots of good people, and at that time it was Deborah El Sayed, Beverly Bryan, Tim Kelsey, working with them quite closely to develop the learning development program nationally on future digital technologies. And that was really interesting because we really got some time then to start exploring what could be the options available to us to help translate some of the things we're doing now using digital technology. And we were able to test certain things that right now form part of our programs. So that was some of what I did to getting closer to where I am today. As someone who works in products and services, you can't ask for more than 100% uptake. Like, that is amazing. <laughs> that must have felt really good. What, one of the other things we learned when we were doing our research about working in the NHS was that it runs on a 97% budget capacity. So there's really little money to invest. And one of the things that struck me is that this is an issue that a lot of senior digital leaders in government face. What are your strategies for navigating uh, with such limited budgets? So I think any health system around the world, any publicly funded health system, has similar constraints. Scarcity of resource is something that we all face in government services and public services around the world. It's not a problem that is unique to us. But equally, it's important that we have provide value for money across public sector. And that's not any different in the health system. It's important we really focus on needs of individuals. And it's really important that we focus on the needs of individuals and continue to provide value to those individuals that are using services. So some of the things that we have to do in order to bring about change is work really closely with local commissioners and provider organisations. At the end of the day, there will always be more demand for health services than there will be supply of resource. But that's a given in any health system. And so knowing that means that we have to think a bit more creatively about how we can use the mechanisms we have in place right now to bring that digital transformation. So that generates a new type of focus. The first part of that is, is really focusing on what the problem is as at today, and how much it needs to be solved, as well as whose problem it is. The second thing that involves is identifying and working with digital leaders, those involved in transformation, and those that want to make a difference, about focusing on how we can do something, as opposed to why we can't do something. Now that means we have to operate within the constraints and confines of the way in which we're set up, but that isn't necessarily a barrier. That just means that we have to work together, working with a range of people collaborating in order to bring about that change. So classic examples of this might be, for example, in primary care at the moment, the way in which we pray for primary care services in the NHS is focusing on the capitation, so the registered list of a practice. Now, this is historic and it's not going to change anytime soon. But knowing that means that we know the rules of the game, we know the way in which the system is designed. So that being the case, we have to work with providers to come up with new models of care in order to deliver digitization. Equally, hospitals, they are paid for historically on an activity basis. That's beginning to change as well. But that means we have to influence the right actors and agents in those hospitals so that when they do have some capacity, they can think really carefully at how they focus that effort to give the greatest benefit against the need that they're facing so that they solve a problem. So again, it involves supporting them, working with them to work through service design, to understand user needs, to undertake the right type of research, and to really help them evaluate digital products and technologies so they can identify those that make the biggest difference when they're thinking about implementing change. Yeah, and speaking of uh, user need and service design, uh, we saw that you and your team are leading on a bunch of really cool initiatives at the moment. Can you tell us what, about one of your favourites and, and what it aims to achieve? So if I take the project that we have in place at the moment as part of our change in clinical triage platforms nationally, the problem that we are trying to fix or rather, we're not really ever going to fix it, but the complexity that we were trying to address was how do we help citizens, users, patients get closest to first clinical contact resolution? How do we give them that least difficult journey in the system, the one that is going to impact most on their outcome? 
And for this, we really had to examine the system. So quite often when we think of projects and programs in the system as a whole in the NHS, we end up with a policy initiative that's great, but sometimes when we implement it, it might almost be that we take a slight target-driven approach. But the good thing is with this project, we had support from across the system to take a different approach. So what we started off with is undertaking some service design and we'd commissioned another agency, uh, it's quite well known, FutureGov, and they were working with us. And what they've really done is gone out and understood the system. They have taken the data from across the NHS. They have met with users, with clinicians. They've really understood what the policy drivers are, what the environment is uh, in which people are operating, as well as what some of the problems are that patients and clinicians face that need solving. And as a result of that, a series of recommendations have come out of that work around what we can do to improve the system and get us closer to that first clinical contact resolution. And that's one of the exciting projects we're working on. But another one that we've been working on, which on the one side might not seem very revolutionary, but on the other side has been quite impressive, is the project around one-on-one online. And this is where we've used the triage pathways that we use nationally in other clinical distance support systems, so on our national phone services like 999 and 111, and created a citizen-facing, online version of them that citizens can use for themselves. And this has been a change for us, but it's resulted in some really good outcomes where it's helped reduce the time it might take for someone to get through the question set, but also it's improved the ability for citizens to connect to clinicians. And that's been a great example. We've worked with a number of different teams. One of the more interesting ones, which is on the horizon for us at the moment, is the work that we're doing around exploring natural language processing and how we could use components of this both to reduce the amount of time it takes for someone to get through to a clinician, but also to improve their experience when they're having this interaction. Because we recognize that some people might want to use online channels, but some people might want to use the voice channel. So how do we bring digitization to the voice space, learning from other industries? And that's been one of the more interesting programs we're about to start. That is absolutely fascinating, and I'm really glad to hear you say that about natural language processing as one of the things you're exploring, um, because it's something we're looking at at my organisation at Citizens Advice as well. So, little byproduct of this podcast, let's definitely chat about this afterwards. It'd be great to have our teams get together and do some joint thinking. That'd be great, and we're always happy to share everything that we do. So, it'd be really good to work with another agency and share what we've learned, as well as perhaps learn from what you've discovered too. Definitely. Great. Um, So just picking up on some of the themes you mentioned there, you talked about qualities and and drivers. Obviously, one of the most difficult things about an organisation like yours is that the system itself is so complicated and and disparate. What are some of the strategies you have for navigating all the complexity that lies within the NHS? Systems like the NHS are always going to be complex. And uh, my starting point is always to accept the complexity, accept the uncertainty and work with it. It's never going to be satisfactory to try and simplify all of that. So perhaps another approach is to identify what can be changed and why and what support is there to bring that change. So the best way of approaching that is working with those people in the system that both want to change and who also themselves become change agents throughout the system. And there's different ways of doing this. One is identifying those parts of the health system that are most ready for change. The other way of addressing this could be from those parts of the system that have some of the biggest problems. And both of those approaches are ones that we use in order to bring about changes and bring about transformation of the system using technology. So some things that we do is work out where can we add the most value? Who might have the biggest problems in a particular area where we're going to be able to help them achieve better outcomes? For example, that might be a local call provider that is getting too many phone calls and they want to divert some of that activity, so they need our help implementing something. It could be an area where a lot of people are turning up at the emergency department, but if we're able to implement online booking, that might help them navigate away to other parts of the system, helping improve overall performance, but improve the outcomes for those people that need those services most. So sometimes working with the problem and with change agents that want to focus on that problem is an approach we take. And that takes us to our network. One of the things that we have uh, both developed throughout the NHS is an incredible network of willing people that want to make change happen. 
And an example of this is the NHS Digital Academy. There's a whole group of people focused on digital health, digital health leadership and transformation. And that network gives us access to people and sites where they might be more willing to make change happen sooner. And that cohort, uh, the cohorts have gone on and that group has grown. And as that group grows, it becomes easier to navigate the complexity. The other thing is recruiting a diverse group of people with experiences from all over the system. And I mean diverse, both in terms of their own backgrounds, their own experiences, their experiences of their work in the NHS, and also the backgrounds that they come from as individuals. Because by doing that, it helps create that link, that bridge to other people like them in the system. And I find with that type of inclusivity, we end up with better decisions being made and a better ability to influence that change. And the final thing is, is really forming those deep relationships and networks into the system to help support that transformation and making transformation everyone's business. That's a great tagline. Uh, great to hear all of the, the work that you're doing around diversity and, and couldn't agree more that we build better services by doing that with teams of people who better reflect society. So that's really good to hear. Um, so speaking of your network and all of the transformation that needs to happen out there, one of the more fun things that we've seen in the headlines lately is the article about how fax machines are going to be phased out of the NHS, which, as someone who's worked in big traditional organisations, does seem like a bit of a pipe dream, <laughs> especially when we're, on the other hand, talking about adopting lots of shiny new technologies. How do you personally balance the, the legacy technologies which the system is reliant on with all the cool, new, exciting stuff? Wow, that's difficult. It's really difficult, especially when there are so many things that take place every week where you see some really amazing technology and uh, go back to base thinking, I wish I had some of that. But then there comes the reality. And one of the things as a clinician working on the ground and being in a provider organisation is balancing that reality. And recognising and remembering there are good reasons patients have to be seen in services. There are the things that clinicians do every single day, despite the technology, irrespective of the constraints they have, but they're all there to care for and look after people. And that driver is one of the important things that we all have to take into account. And the background to the fax machine is but ultimately it meets a need. There are people using it because at that moment in time, it does something for them that other technology perhaps can't do or doesn't do in the same way, or it solves a problem for today. Equally, there's new technology that focuses and solves new problems. But I take it back every single time to need, and that is focus on which need are we trying to deal with? What's the clinical need? What's the emotional need? What's the practical need? And if we focus on the need, and ultimately the problem relating to that need, and then prioritise against those needs, that might help take us to which solutions we focus on first against which problem. And we might avoid, in some cases, looking for new and shiny tech that may not necessarily be the best for our organisation, but might be best placed elsewhere in the system, and focus on those things that we can do well and do well to make a difference now. If we take something like a fax machine, it exists for good reason. It exists for good reason because there have been lots of services over the years that have developed workflows and processes around the fax machine. But knowing that it exists and knowing that we have effectively created a set of people trained to use it means that we have to work with those people to understand what is their workflow, what's the problem they're dealing with, the need they're trying to meet and the outcome they're looking for. We have to translate to other technologies. And that requires working with lots and lots of organisations, industry partners, researchers, SMEs and others in order to try and work out what solutions best solve a problem. And so doing that and taking that approach is one of the things we do. That's so interesting. And it's good to hear that you're navigating the balance in some way. It's, it's a very difficult challenge. And, and just finally, uh, one bit of reflection from me um, before we go into some more fun stuff. You spoke at the beginning about your background in uh, and your passion for public health. In terms of inequality in the health service, and you, know, you mentioned some uh, measures which your team are taking around diversity, what are some of the other things you think the NHS and your team can do to reduce that inequality of access? I think there's lots of things that lots of people across the system can do. 
one of the things is recognizing that we have such diverse users. We have such a diverse group of users across the system that they're not all going to be from the same background. We've got to think of characteristics of our population in a new way. We've got to recognize user needs in a very different way. And their needs are not necessarily just their health needs, but they have social needs as well, as well as other physical needs. And when we combine all of those needs and what we know about local population and their differences, that helps us to focus on what some of those solutions might be and how we might address those. One of the important things, though, is talking to people on the ground, recognizing the type of stakeholder that we might want to approach in order to find out more about these populations. And that requires, from a public health point of view, one of the things that I've always benefited from is getting right out there into local communities and meeting people in their own environments, in the places that they wouldn't necessarily come to. Because if they're already using health services, we probably know about them and their needs to an extent. What about all those people that we don't? And that requires taking a very different approach. That requires different times at which we might want to interact. That requires taking different people that might become our uh, agents in those communities. And ultimately, what we really want to do, and I've seen this done well in some places, is get citizens much more involved in leading that change process. In some cases, even leading steering groups and other ways in which that change comes about. The other thing, though, that I'm very keen on is human rights. And one of the things that I did uh, once upon a time was uh, retrain in law for a while. And that brings another dimension to addressing that inequality, which is the sense of fairness. And that is also very important because as well as addressing inequality, the inequity is more important as well, which is really bringing that sense of fairness to what we do. And there's so many ways in which we can do that. But upholding those values around human society and bringing that into our work is one way we can do this. And we've got to think, when we think about digital services, sometimes it's very easy just to think about those that are digitally engaged, but we also need to think about those that are disengaged. So it's great to create digital services, it's great to use technology to offer an access mechanism in, but for those that choose not to use those things, we still need to maintain physical services to allow them to continue to interact in a way that they would have done in any event with some of the improvements, even if they choose not to use an online channel. Yeah, one of the things that really jumped out about the way in which you think that people can interact with the health sector that we read about in our research about you was around wearables and apps. And so sort of moving on to a few more lighter questions, do you use any health tracking apps and uh, which ones could you not live without? (laughs) There's probably plenty I should live without, but I happen to use a, uh, a smartphone and a smart watch and my smart watch definitely does a lot of tracking so it tracks how many steps I take in a day and it tracks my movement and it I think it also tracks my sleep but I think I choose to ignore that it tracks how much screen time I have which is far too much of course and the app that I happen to use which I probably fixate on a little bit is uh, one that tracks both weight food and exercise uh, and that particular app probably does consume a lot of my life. And it's a really good way of me keeping on track of uh, the exercise I'm supposed to do and the food I'm supposed to eat. But it is a good little reminder of what I am doing. But the great thing about the app is that other people I interact with have access to it. So it's a good way of using sort of community to help remind me of what I should and shouldn't do. But yeah, those uh, trackers are particularly helpful, especially at five o'clock in the morning when I happen to go onto the trampoline with my two-year-old because uh, the, the app does definitely get its steps in. <laughs> That's one way to get your steps up. <laughs> and you're obviously a clinician. We we talked about this earlier. And one of the things that struck us is that there are a lot of great and terrible depictions of medicine and clinicians on TV. What do you think is the most outrageous depiction and, and why? There are, there are lots out there. Um, I think one is where people sort of ended up with a fear of clinicians and, uh, Especially if I think like my own profession, um, a lot of people have a fear of going to the dentist. Uh, and that's partly because they go because they're in pain. Um, and one of the things that I would like to do, of course, is try and reduce and change that dynamic. Because actually, if people interact much earlier on and take advice, they're probably less likely to get into pain. And they're more likely to have a more sort of fulfilling experience. So uh, that's one of the areas where I think that people probably have a particularly bad view. 
Brilliant. Uh, a good dentist does absolute wonders. So yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for reminding us of that. Um, and just finally from me, we always love to finish up with some recommendations for things that our listeners can get involved in and, and learn more about. So can you start us off by recommending a podcast that we should listen to? Of course, this one. But other than this one, I think people should listen to Tech Talks. I think they have a really good curation of speakers and interesting topics. And uh, that crossover between what's happening between a range of sectors is really useful. And they're quite fun, too. So I do like listening to Tech Talks. Nice. We'll definitely give it a listen. And how about a Twitter account we should follow? I really like Secret Barrister. I think that... uh, that the secret barrister writes really well but also puts things into very simple terms what are quite complex policy and legal issues taking place in society and they're quite fun too so uh I, I, that's a that's a sort of fun one that i quite recommend but on fairly serious issues awesome all of the secret uh twitter accounts are really good secret footballer is another one that i really like as well so yeah definitely and how about a book? Can be fiction or non-fiction? Well, I think uh, this book is very real, but I think some people hope that it was actually fiction. But trust me, I'm a junior doctor is one that I particularly like reading. You might always think it's a bit too work-like, but it's a, it's a great book. It's a great read. Well, that, I'm sure that has some really harrowing stuff in it. I'll, I'll check it out. And finally, a charity or a social enterprise that our listeners can support. There are so many charities out there and uh, ultimately it depends on what's important to individuals. And uh, certainly the charities that I probably sponsor wouldn't necessarily be this one, first of all. But this charity in particular is important to me, and that's the Prince's Trust. And what they do and the work that they do to improve inclusivity in the workplace and society is particularly important. They are able to bring about social mobility. And that's so important and for a charity to have that impact, where they're effectively having an impact on inequalities and ultimately having an impact on people's lives and their health through reducing that inequality is really important. And what they're doing is bringing about that social movement. So that's one of the um, most important charities out there. I think. Wonderful. Thank you. And yeah, that, that's it from us, Sam. Thank you so much for chatting. It's been wonderful to get your backstory and, and learn a bit about how the NHS is, is really transforming in some very difficult times. And it's great to hear all of the enthusiasm that you have for the work and, and for your team. So for all of, from all of us at One Team Gov, keep going. So, Kylie, I love that origin story of how you met Sam on Twitter. It's so rare that you give people unsolicited feedback on social media and they take it so well. How did it feel chatting to him about that? Yeah, it was really good. I was I was feeling in a very bold mood that day when I sent that tweet. And I did have a sort of thought in the back of my mind about how it would be received, particularly by the people who are obviously leading the recruitment process. And also on reflection... Um, As someone who's hired lots of people recently, I did think a bit afterwards, you know, I'm sure they didn't mean to make it uninclusive. And I was hopeful that the way I tweeted about it was showing some empathy and not just having a go. And to his complete credit, Sam came back to me not only really, really quickly, but was just entirely open and receptive to the comments. So what happened behind the scenes for for our listeners to know is that He immediately DM'd me on Twitter, put me in touch with the people who were leading the recruitment process, and he passed on the feedback. And within, I think, about 24 hours, he'd come back to me with what they were going to do and when they were going to do it by, which was essentially to accept the recommendation and make the change to the job spec. And I seem to remember that Sam apologized for being so slow because he was on holiday. (laughs) And I was thinking dude, you just come back to me lightning speed with such a good response. Please don't feel bad. You know, you're trying to go on your holidays and you're at the airport or whatever. So yeah, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better response. And as I said, a lot to think about for anyone who's hiring it, including me. 
So yeah, big, big plus to Sam on that. And if anyone has any other inclusive recruitment tips that they want to share with One Team Gov, we'd we'd love to hear them and get the conversation started. So what did you think of the chat? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I can't believe that he managed to get back to you in 24 hours. That's like the fastest response from a senior leader I've ever heard of. That was great. But it's probably indicative of the background that he's come from, from that clinical space of being really receptive to people and their ideas. And I loved that story about how he came from a clinical background and how the practitioning of that gave him insights into what was frustrating about parts of technology that I think a lot of senior technical leaders don't necessarily get. Like when he talked about just being able to converse between clinicians being difficult and in the age of Slack and, and WhatsApp and all the other services that we use, it's hard to even think about not even being able to talk to your peers. And it made me think it would be great if more of the, our senior leaders had those kind of dual roles of being practitioners of what they did and also got paid to, to influence the delivery of technology at that senior level. I wonder what different outcomes we'd see if that was more of the case. Definitely, that's a really good point. In my current organization at Citizens Advice, I was speaking to someone recently in our in our senior leadership team, and she is our head of welfare policy, but she's also a trained advisor. So she, a day or two a week, will actually be in Citizens Advice local offices, giving people advice about welfare and benefits and, and any of the other varied issues that people come to us for. And I've always thought that was such an admirable model. And if I have the opportunity to to spend time with people on the front line, I always do. But there's that there's that extra step that people like Sam and my colleague take where they're actually practicing it every day. Um, so I couldn't agree with you more. I think I would love to see more of that. And I'd love to see more of people who are frontline workers becoming senior leaders in digital and technology programs because they have so much to bring to it. Definitely. So what did you think about his background in the private sector? What I mainly liked was how well he spoke about it and how relevant he managed to to make his experience. So lots of us, including both of us, have had experience either now or in the past working in the private sector. And I think that many of us would say that a lot of that experience was really useful, but mainly people tend to speak about the differences and why public sector can't won't or will ever be like the private sector and what I really enjoyed about our chat with Sam was that he he spoke to some of the things he'd learned from the private sector in a way that was really easy to see the parallels so some of my favorites that he mentioned were things like phone systems in financial services and the early adoption of things like call centers and uh, VoIP technology and things like that it's the kind of application of technology that is so incredibly common in public service delivery these days things like you know call centers and and automated uh, phone services in that way but the fact that he was there to see the the growth and the testing of it in a very large scale and also very risk averse environment was interesting to see and you could you could understand how that was relevant to the NHS who are also very large scale and risk averse I also enjoyed his examples of what we might call Wizard of Oz use of technology, for example, the online shopping. So he was explaining how online shopping really started off being the the shiny, exciting internet bit of online shopping was what people saw and what consumers saw and what they placed their orders on. But behind the scenes, those orders were getting printed out and the fulfillment warehouses were, you know, running around with these bits of paper in order to gather the goods that people had ordered and then post them to people. So it was halfway there to transformation, but there was a lot of manual processes behind the scenes that didn't get digitized until much later. And we see a lot of that model now. Um, and it just goes to show that, you know, that that taking that user first approach and trying to make the the bit that the user sees first really excellent and of the quality that people would expect means that you can then spend the time afterwards catching up the back-end processes to fit what the user needs rather than the other way around. So I thought those were two really good examples. What did you make of his uh, private sector experience? 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more with what you just said in terms of Wizard of Ozing. <laughs> I love that term, by the way. I think we saw a lot of that, especially in the early days of uh, government transformation when we were working at MOJ and, and other organizations. And it just goes to show that I think sometimes we put in a lot of clout to the private sector and we think that they're you know, very different and very special, but everyone does it. It's good to know that at some point everyone sort of baked it and spoofed it. And it's good to know that that is a, an approach that is used across the board, whether in Europe, you're in the public sector or in the private sector. And the most important thing, as you said, is making sure that we deliver services that users expect. So that was awesome to hear. And how about your favourite example of NHS legacy technology, the fax machine? I loved that story about the fax machine. And what I thought was interesting about it was Sam's empathetic approach to it. And that clearly comes from having worked in and around clinicians and people who support clinicians. So after chatting with Sam, I was talking to some colleagues about the NHS and the fax machine. And one of them sent me this scathing article from The Telegraph, which basically said the reason why there's so many fax machines in the NHS is because people are stubborn and they love it so much they don't want to give it up. And what really struck me was the contrast to what Sam was saying about the fax machine, which is actually people have built workflows in spite of the technology that they have been given for many years. And it was a really powerful reminder not to second guess why those services are in place without actually speaking to the people who use them. And I think that empathetic approach of understanding why things are there and how we can build services around the people who actually use those services. It was just a great reminder of that. Absolutely. Another one of those examples that he gave, which I think brings out the same point you've made there, was the project around uh, reducing the time for the first clinical contact resolution, I think was how he described it. So it was the amount of time it takes for a referral measured in terms of how long the person has to wait for that appointment and what he was explaining was that by using that as the data point so the the time to first clinical contact what the team were able to do is really bring the focus of the policy work in line with a more service design approach by starting with outcomes for users rather than trying to design through policy without taking into account some of the other more human-centered factors of a process like that And as you said, I thought it was a great example of how Sam and his team are helping people who work in design and digital skills in the NHS to take a really empathetic approach with the people that they're working with and give those people in the NHS uh, tools and methods that that help them be as user-centered as we know they are. Because they're such a mission-driven organization, the NHS, it would be easy to worry about the impact that user-centered designers could have or the limits of that impact, because essentially we would be trying to convince people who are already incredibly focused on the user to do more of that. And what it was great to hear is that the approach being taken is more in terms of tools and ways of working and how that can support people towards the ambitions that they already have to make the NHS an incredibly user-centered organization. So I thought that was great. Yeah, and talking about tools and ways of working, I heard your ears prick up when Sam talked about implementing natural language processing, and that might be something you're thinking about. What sparked your interest about that? Yeah, so natural language processing is something that I'm thinking about in my own organization at the moment. To explain what that is for our listeners who might not know, natural language processing is essentially when you take human language, so usually spoken language that's translated into text, and have a computer interact with that data at scale. So it's typically where you have records of lots of human conversations And what you get the computer to do is to process and analyze that language um, and those conversations in a large scale way. So trying to identify things like patterns, themes, sentiment, common things that are spoken about, different ways in which people tend to have conversations between different user groups. So things like that. So it's a very relevant use of technology where you have 
a huge amount of content or words in your organization. And that's something that we have at Citizens Advice. So there are some interesting hypotheses about where you might usefully apply this technology that it sounds like the NHS are exploring. Um, and I would certainly like to explore in, in my team and also would love to hear from people who are looking at it in theirs as well. So typically what natural language processing might be able to help us do is to support interactions between humans. So for people whose services are delivered not exclusively online and sometimes do require a human interaction, natural language processing can really come into play and be used very effectively. So yeah, so it's fantastic to hear some examples of the NHS looking at that. And I'd encourage any of our listeners to get in touch with me or OneTeamGov or Sam <laughs> to talk about this some more because it could be a really powerful tool for us. So what did you think about the classic challenge that the NHS have around more demand than they're able to meet? Yeah, I thought it was cool to hear Sam talk about scarce resources and it was a really good and succinct explanation of how you can work within a system to get services designed and delivered to places where there is the most need. I think often we look at government organisations and we're like, oh, it's too complex to try something new or it's too difficult to change policies. And we almost get stuck in this loop. And what I liked about what Sam said was, you know, just embrace that complexity and understand the scarcity and try and understand the people in the system who might be able to help change it and work with them to deliver some of these services. So I thought it was a really good and powerful way to think about complexity and scarcity within systems. And, and I can't think of a better example than the NHS, which is so overloaded, but also so beloved and so integral to people's lives. And finally, I thought that Sam's point about how transformation is all of our jobs and should be within all of our remits was a great one. And a really good reminder that we do, you don't just need a transformation team. You don't just need one part of your organization doing this. It really has to be everyone in order to create any change. Definitely. You couldn't have picked a better clip to put in our introduction there. Transformation is everybody's business. And that's it from the One Team Gov Show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.